Chapter Three, Part One of the Subjection of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Three, Part One. On the other point which is involved in the just equality of women, their admissibility to all the functions and occupations hitherto retained as the monopoly of the stronger sex, I would anticipate no difficulty in convincing any one who has gone with me on the subject of the equality of women in the family. I believe their disabilities elsewhere are only clung to in order to maintain their subordination in domestic life, because the generality of the male sex cannot yet tolerate the idea of living with an equal. Were it not for that, I think that almost every one, in the existing state of opinion in politics and political economy, would admit the injustice of excluding half the human race from the greater number of lucrative occupations, and from almost all high social functions, ordaining from their birth either that they are not, and cannot by any possibility become, fit for employments which are legally open to the stupidest and basest of the other sex, or else that however fit they may be, those employments should be interdicted to them, in order to be preserved for the exclusive benefit of males. In the last two centuries, when, which was seldom the case, any reason beyond the mere existence of the fact was thought to be required to justify the disabilities of women, people seldom assigned as a reason their inferior mental capacity, which in times when there was a real trial of personal faculties, from which all women were not excluded, in the struggles of public life, no one really believed in. The reason given in those days was not women's unfitness, but the interest of society, by which was meant the interest of men. Just as the reason d'etat, meaning the convenience of the government, and the support of existing authority, was deemed a sufficient explanation and excuse for the most flagitious crimes. In the present day power holds a smoother language, and whomsoever it oppresses always pretends to do so for their own good. Accordingly, when anything is forbidden to women, it is thought necessary to say, and desirable to believe, that they are incapable of doing it, and that they depart from their real path of success and happiness when they aspire to it. But to make this reason plausible, I do not say valid, those by whom it is urged must be prepared to carry it to a much greater length than anyone ventures to do in the face of present experience. It is not sufficient to maintain that women on the average are less gifted than men on the average, with certain of the higher mental faculties, or that a smaller number of women than of men are fit for occupations and functions of the highest intellectual character. It is necessary to maintain that no women at all are fit for them, and that the most eminent women are inferior in mental faculties to the most mediocre of the men on whom those functions at present devolve. For if the performance of the function is decided either by competition, or by any mode of choice which secures regard to the public interest, there needs be no apprehension that any important employments will fall into the hands of women inferior to average men, or to the average of their male competitors. The only result would be that there would be fewer women than men in such employments, a result certain to happen in any case, if only from the preference always likely to be felt by the majority of women for the one vocation in which there is nobody to compete with them. Now the most determined depreciator of women will not venture to deny that when we add the experience of recent times to that of ages past, women, and not a few merely, but many women, have proved themselves capable of everything, perhaps without a single exception, which is done by men, and of doing it successfully and credibly. The utmost that can be said is, that there are many things which none of them have succeeded in doing as well as they have been done by some men, many in which they have not reached the very highest rank, 
but there are extremely few, dependent only on mental faculties, in which they have not attained the rank next to the highest. Is not this enough, and much more than enough, to make it a tyranny to them, and a detriment to society, that they should not be allowed to compete with men for the exercise of these functions? Is it not a mere truism to say, that such functions are often filled by men far less fit for them than numbers of women, and who would be beaten by women in any fair field of competition? What difference does it make that there may be men somewhere, fully employed about other things, who may be still better qualified for the things in question than these women? Does not this take place in all competitions? Is there so great a superfluity of men fit for high duties, that society can afford to reject the service of any competent person? Are we so certain of always finding a man made to our hands for any duty or function of social importance which falls vacant, that we lose nothing by putting a ban upon one half of mankind, and refusing beforehand to make their faculties available, however distinguished they may be? And even if we could do without them, would it be consistent with justice to refuse them fair share of honor and distinction, or to deny them the equal moral right of all human beings to choose their occupation, short of injury to others, according to their own preferences, at their own risk? Nor is the injustice confined to them. It is shared by those who are in a position to benefit by their services. To ordain that any kind of persons shall not be physicians, or shall not be advocates, or shall not be members of Parliament, is to injure not them only, but all who employ physicians or advocates, or elect members of Parliament, and who are deprived of the stimulating effect of greater competition on the exertions of the competitors, as well as restricted to a narrower range of individual choice. It will perhaps be sufficient if I confine myself, in the details of my argument, to functions of a public nature, since, if I am successful as to those, it probably will be readily granted that women should be admissible to all other occupations to which it is at all material whether they are admitted or not. Here let me begin by marking out one function, broadly distinguished from all others, their right to which is entirely independent of any question which can be raised concerning their faculties. I mean the suffrage, both parliamentary and municipal. The right to share in the choice of those who are to exercise a public trust is altogether a distinct thing from that of competing for the trust itself. If no one could vote for a member of Parliament who was not fit to be a candidate, the government would be a narrow oligarchy indeed. To have a voice in choosing those by whom one is to be governed is a means of self-protection due to every one, though he were to remain forever excluded from the function of governing, and that women are considered fit to have such a choice may be presumed from the fact that the law already gives it to women in the most important of all cases to themselves, for the choice of the man who is to govern a woman to the end of life. It is always supposed to be voluntarily made by herself. In the case of election to public trusts, it is the business of constitutional law to surround the right of suffrage with all needful securities and limitations, but whatever securities are sufficient in the case of the male sex, no others need be required in the case of women. Under whatever conditions, and within whatever limits, men are admitted to the suffrage, there is not a shadow of justification for not admitting women under the same. The majority of women of any class are not likely to differ in political opinion from the majority of the men of the same class, unless the question be one in which the interests of women, as such, are in some way involved, and if they are so, women require the suffrage as their guarantee of just and equal consideration. This ought to be obvious even to those who coincide in no other of the doctrines for which I contend. Even if every woman were a wife, and if every wife ought to be a slave, all the more would these slaves stand in need of legal protection, and we know what legal protection the slaves have. 
where the laws are made by their masters. With regard to the fitness of women not only to participate in elections, but themselves to hold offices or practice professions involving important public responsibilities, I have already observed that this consideration is not essential to the practical question in dispute, since any woman who succeeds in an open profession proves by that very fact that she is qualified for it. And in the case of public offices, if the political system of the country is such as to exclude unfit men, it will equally exclude unfit women. While if it is not, there is no additional evil in the fact that the unfit persons whom it admits may be either women or men. As long, therefore, as it is acknowledged that even a few women may be fit for these duties, the laws which shut the door on those exceptions cannot be justified by any opinion which can be held respecting the capacities of women in general. But though this last consideration is not essential, it is far from being irrelevant. An unprejudiced view of it gives additional strength to the arguments against the disabilities of women, and reinforces them by high considerations of practical utility. Let us first make entire abstraction of all psychological considerations tending to show that any of the mental differences supposed to exist between men and women are but the natural effect of the differences in their education and circumstances, and indicate no radical difference, far less radical inferiority, of nature. Let us consider women only as they already are, or as they are known to have been, and the capacities with which they have already practically shown. What they have done, that at least, if nothing else, it is proved that they can do. When we consider how sedulously they are all trained away from, instead of being trained towards, any of the occupations or objects reserved for men, it is evident that I am taking a very humble ground for them, when I rest their case on what they have actually achieved. For, in this case, negative evidence is worth little, while any positive evidence is conclusive. It cannot be inferred to be impossible that a woman should be a Homer, or an Aristotle, or a Michelangelo, or a Beethoven, because no woman has yet actually produced works comparable to theirs in any of those lines of excellence. This negative fact at most leaves the question uncertain, and open to psychological discussion. But it is quite certain that a woman can be a Queen Elizabeth, or a Deborah, or a Joan of Arc, since this is not inference, but fact. Now it is a curious consideration that the only things which the existing law excludes women from doing are the things which they have proved that they are able to do. There is no law to prevent a woman from having written all the plays of Shakespeare, or composed all the operas of Mozart, but Queen Elizabeth or Queen Victoria, had they not inherited the throne, could not have been entrusted with the smallest of the political duties, of which the former showed herself equal to the greatest. If anything conclusive could be inferred from experience, without psychological analysis, it would be that the things which women are not allowed to do are the very ones for which they are peculiarly qualified, since their vocation for government has made its way and become conspicuous through the very few opportunities which have been given, while in the lines of distinction which apparently were freely open to them, they have by no means so eminently distinguished themselves. We know how small a number of reigning queens history presents in comparison with that of kings. Of this smaller number a far larger proportion have shown talents for the rule, though many of them have occupied the throne in difficult periods. It is remarkable, too, that they have, in a great number of instances, been distinguished by merits the most opposite to the imaginary and conventional character of women. They have been as much remarked for the firmness and vigor of their rule as for its intelligence. When, to queens and empresses, we add regents and viceroys of provinces, the list of women who have been eminent rulers of mankind swells to a great length. Footnote 1. Especially is this true if we take into consideration Asia as well as Europe. 
If a Hindu principality is strongly, vigilantly, and economically governed, if order is preserved without oppression, if cultivation is extending and the people prosperous, in three cases out of four that principality is under a woman's rule. This fact, to me an entirely unexpected one, I have collected from a long knowledge of Hindu governments. There are many such instances, for though, by Hindu institutions, a woman cannot reign, she is the legal regent of a kingdom during the minority of the heir, and minorities are frequent, the lives of the male rulers being so often prematurely terminated through the effect of inactivity and sensual excesses. When we consider that these princesses have never been seen in public, have never conversed with any man not of their own family, except from behind a curtain, that they do not read, and if they did there is no book in their languages which can give them the smallest instruction on political affairs, the example they afford of the natural capacity of women for government is very striking. End footnote. This fact is so undeniable that someone, long ago, tried to retort the argument and turned the admitted truth into an additional insult by saying that queens are better than kings, because under kings women govern, but under queens men. It may seem a waste of reasoning to argue against a bad joke, but such things do affect people's minds. And I have heard men quote this saying, with an air as if they thought that there was something in it. At any rate, it will serve as anything, else for a starting point in discussion. I say, then, that it is not true that under kings women govern. Such cases are entirely exceptional, and we kings have quite as often governed ill through the influence of male favorites as a female. When a king is governed by a woman merely through his amatory propensities, good government is not probable, though even then there are exceptions. But French history counts two kings who have voluntarily given the direction of affairs during many years, the one to his mother, the other to his sister. One of them, Charles the Seventh, was a mere boy, but in doing so he followed the intentions of his father, Louis the Eleventh, the ablest monarch of his age. The other, St. Louis, was the best, and one of the most vigorous rulers, since the time of Charlemagne. Both these princesses ruled in a manner hardly equaled by any prince among their contemporaries. The Emperor Charles V, the most politic prince of his time, who had as great a number of able men in his service as a ruler ever had, and was one of the least likely of all sovereigns to sacrifice his interest to personal feelings, made two princesses of his family successively governors of the Netherlands, and kept one or the other of them in that post during his whole life. They were afterwards succeeded by a third. Both ruled very successfully, and one of them, Margaret of Austria, as one of the ablest politicians of the age. So much for one side of the question, now as to the other. When it is said that under queens men govern, is the same meaning to be understood as when kings are said to be governed by women? Is it meant that queens choose as their instruments of government the associates of their personal pleasures? The case is rare, even with those who are as unscrupulous on the latter point as Catherine the Second, and it is not in these cases that the good government, alleged to arise from male influence, is to be found. If it be true, then, that the administration is in the hands of better men under a queen, than under an average king, it must be that queens have a superior capacity for choosing them, and women must be better qualified than men both for the position of sovereign and for that of chief minister, for the principal business of a prime minister is not to govern in person, but to find the fittest persons to conduct every department of public affairs. The more rapid insight into character, which is one of the admitted points of superiority in women over men, must certainly make them, with anything like parity of qualifications in other respects, more apt than men in that choice of instruments, which is nearly the most important business of every one who has had to do with governing mankind. Even the unprincipled Catherine de Medici, 
could feel the value of a Chancellor de l'Hôpital. But it is also true that most great queens have been great by their own talents for government, and have been well served precisely for that reason. They retain the supreme direction of affairs in their own hands, and if they listened to good advisers, they gave by that fact the strongest proof that their judgment fitted them for dealing with the great questions of government. Is it reasonable to think that those who are fit for the greater functions of politics are incapable of qualifying themselves for the less? Is there any reason in the nature of things that the wives and sisters of princes should, whenever called upon, be found as competent as the princes themselves to their business, but that the wives and sisters of statesmen and administrators and directors of companies and managers of public institutions should be unable to do what is done by their brothers and husbands? The real reason is plain enough. It is that princesses, being more raised above the generality of men by their rank than placed below them by their sex, have never been taught that it was improper for them to concern themselves with politics, but have been allowed to feel the liberal interest natural to any cultivated human being in the great transactions which took place around them, and in which they might be called upon to take a part. The ladies of reigning families are the only women who are allowed the same range of interests and freedom of development as men, and it is precisely in their case that there is not found to be any inferiority. Exactly where and in proportion as women's capacities for government have been tried, in that proportion have they been found adequate. This fact is in accordance with the best general conclusions which the world's imperfect experience seems as yet to suggest concerning the peculiar tendencies and aptitudes characteristic of women, as women have hitherto been. I do not say, as they will continue to be, for, as I have already said more than once, I consider it presumption in any one to pretend to decide what women are or are not, can or cannot be, by natural constitution. They have always hitherto been kept, as far as regards spontaneous development, in so unnatural a state that their nature cannot but have been greatly distorted and disguised, and no one can safely pronounce that if women's nature were left to choose its direction as freely as men's, and if no artificial bent were attempted to be given to it, except that required by the conditions of human society, and given to both sexes alike, there would be any material difference, or perhaps any difference at all, in the character and capacities which would unfold themselves. I shall presently show that even the least contestable of the differences which now exist are such as may very well have been produced merely by circumstances, without any difference of natural capacity. But looking at women as they are known in experience, it may be said of them, with more truth than belongs to most other generalizations on the subject, that the general bent of their talents is toward the practical. This statement is conformable to all the public history of women, in the present and the past. It is no less borne out by common and daily experience. Let us consider the special nature of the mental capacities most characteristic of a woman of talent. They are all of a kind which fits them for practice, and makes them tend towards it. What is meant by a woman's capacity of intuitive perception? It means a rapid and correct insight into present fact. It has nothing to do with general principles. Nobody ever perceived a scientific law of nature by intuition, nor arrived at a general rule of duty or prudence by it. These are results of slow and careful collection and comparison of experience, and neither the men nor the women of intuition usually shine in this department, unless, indeed, the experience necessary is such as they can acquire by themselves. For what is called their intuitive sagacity makes them peculiarly apt in gathering such general truths as can be collected from their individual means of observation. When, consequently, they chance to be as well provided as men are with the results of other people's experience, by reading and education, 
I use the word chance advisedly, for in respect to the knowledge that tends to fit them for the greater concerns of life, the only educated women are the self-educated. They are better furnished than men in general with the essential requisites of skillful and successful practice. Men who are much taught are apt to be deficient in the sense of present fact. They do not see, in the facts which they are called upon to deal with, what is really there, but what they have been taught to expect. This is seldom the case with women of any ability. Their capacity of intuition preserves them from it. With a quality of experience and of general faculties, a woman usually sees much more than a man of what is immediately before her. Now this sensibility to the present is the main quality on which the capacity for practice, as distinguished from theory, depends. To discover general principles belongs to the speculative faculty. To discern and discriminate the particular cases in which they are and are not applicable constitutes practical talent, and for this women as they now are have a peculiar aptitude. I admit that there can be no good practice without principles, and that the predominant place where quickness of observation holds among a woman's faculties makes her particularly apt to build over-hasty generalizations upon her own observation, though at the same time no less ready in rectifying those generalizations as her observation takes a wider range. But the corrective to this defect is access to the experience of the human race, general knowledge, exactly the thing which education can best supply. A woman's mistakes are specifically those of a clever self-educated man, who often sees what men trained in routine do not see, but falls into errors of want of knowing things which have long been known. Of course he has acquired much of the pre-existing knowledge, or he could not have got on at all, but what he knows of it he has picked up in fragments and at random, as women do. But this gravitation of women's minds to the present, to the real, to actual fact, while in its exclusiveness is a source of errors, is also a much useful counteractive of the contrary error. The principal and most characteristic aberration of speculative minds as such consists precisely in the deficiency of this lively perception and ever-present sense of objective fact. For want of this they often not only overlook the contradiction which outward facts oppose to their theories, but lose sight of the legitimate purpose of speculation altogether, and let their speculative faculties go astray into regions not peopled with real beings, animate or inanimate, even idealized, but with personified shadows created by the illusions of metaphysics or by the mere entanglement of words, and think these shadows the proper objects of the highest, the most transcendent philosophy. Hardly anything can be of greater value to a man of theory and speculation who employs himself not in collecting materials of knowledge by observation, but in working them up by processes of thought into comprehensive truths of science and laws of conduct, than to carry on his speculations in the companionship and under the criticism of a really superior woman. There is nothing comparable to it for keeping his thoughts within the limits of real things and the actual facts of nature. A woman seldom runs wild after an abstraction. The habitual direction of her mind to dealing with things as individuals, rather than in groups, and, what is closely connected with it, her more lively interest in the present feelings of persons, which makes her consider, first of all, in anything which claims to be applied to practice, in what manner persons will be affected by it, these two things make her extremely unlikely to put faith in any speculation which loses sight of individuals, and deals with things as if they existed for the benefit of some imaginary entity, some mere creation of the mind, not resolvable into the feelings of living beings. Women's thoughts are thus as useful in giving reality to those of thinking men, as men's thoughts in giving width and largeness to those of women. In depth, as distinguished from breadth, 
I greatly doubt if even now women compared with men are at any disadvantage. End of chapter 3, part 1